Korea has not been the only battleground since the end of the Second World War. Men have fought and died in Malaya, in Greece, in the Philippines, in Algeria, and Cuba, and Cyprus, and almost continuously on the Indo-Chinese Peninsula. No nuclear weapons have been fired. No massive nuclear retaliation has been considered appropriate. This is another type of warfare, new in its intensity, ancient in its origin, war by guerrillas, subversives, insurgents, assassins, war by ambush instead of by combat, by infiltration instead of aggression, seeking victory by eroding and exhausting the enemy instead of engaging him. It is a form of warfare uniquely adapted to what has been strangely called wars of liberation. To undermine the efforts of new and poor countries to maintain the freedom that they have finally achieved. It preys on economic unrest and ethnic conflicts. It requires in those situations where we must counter it. And these are the kinds of challenges that will be before us in the next decade if freedom is to be saved, a whole new kind of strategy, a wholly different kind of force, and therefore a new and wholly different kind of military training. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. We got an interesting episode for you guys. It is going to feature some guests that were on the show previously. Uh, it, it's going to be four of us on at the same time, and we're just going to have a big discussion. We're talking Vietnam, we're talking Iraq, we're talking a little politics, we're talking current events uh, such as you know what's going on with uh, all these police shootings and things like that. So I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Um, so here's the interview. We are officially on. Um, awesome. So for this episode, I have three guests. We're all going to be on at the same time. Um, so we'll start with brief introductions. Um, G, let's start with you, brother. Hey, what's going on, John? Um, first off, you know, thanks for having me on here again. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, so for those who don't know, my name is G. I'm a uh, former Marine and uh, infantry. I served two combat tours in Iraq, and I currently own and run Zero Foxtrot, and I just began a new project with two other individuals called Zero Films Productions. And, uh, you know, we're getting released a lot of projects, and um, so we'll talk to, you know, talk about it more later. Yeah, and, and we'll definitely get into the, the films project, because that's very interesting. Um, so, Jason, uh, we'll, we'll get to you, brother. <clears throat> what's up fellas uh glad to be uh back on g and mike and john um i'm my name is jason economos and i am the author of general propositions um technically a unit historian for magli sog according to some people not me yeah. um but uh yeah um working on the sequel right now and um couldn't tell you when it's going to be done because there's just too much left to talk about so that's me 
Yeah, and and for the listeners out there, I, I highly recommend that you check uh, General Propositions out. Uh, you can find it on Amazon.com. So search for General Propositions. It's it's really one of the best books on SOG that I've read. Uh, you know about the Vietnam War, so it's very good. Uh, Thanks, man. I appreciate it. No, no problem. And then, last but not least, we have uh, Mike Stahl back on the show. Um, some of the listeners are probably familiar with Mike. He was on for a few episodes. Uh, so, Mike, uh, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, John. Uh, good to be back with you and Jason and to meet, J- uh, to meet G. Uh, I'm an old SFer from the first generation, served two years in Vietnam uh, as a Green Beret, uh, worked many facets of the, the special ops, uh, from civil affairs to uh, recon with MACV SOG. Uh, got wounded on my last mission, so I'm medically retired. Did a little college and uh, uh, pretty much just trying to, to work with veterans today and try to uh, get the word out about Vietnam. All righty. So, so, G, we'll, we'll start off with you and we'll, we'll talk about your special project. Um, I've seen you. You had a few posts on social media kind of like showing small previews of, of videos and interviews. So what exactly is this project and, and what led you to, to start it? Yeah, of course, man. Um, so for uh, for those that don't know, I mean, Zero Foxtrot, it's a very military-oriented page. And uh, I focus a lot on, on the historical facts of history and the past, you know, the past uh, generation culture. And one... Um, one war that really stuck out to me was the Vietnam War, and uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, besides the fact that it was a very uh, controversial war during those times, and that you had all these men that went out there and fought, and then you know the politics back home, and and all kinds of stuff. And what I came to the conclusion is that all these men and women who went out there, they did not get the proper recognition for all, what what they're done, and also how big of an impact they have made on society. And I'm also trying to break all the myths that have been around for the Vietnam, you know, for the Vietnam generation. Uh, People were talking about, oh, well, we lost the war. Well, we didn't lose anything. The politics lost their side. The military that went out there never lost a single engagement ever. You know, just little things like that. Everybody, as Jason mentioned before, everybody thinks they were drafted. No, a lot of people actually volunteer to go out there and fight. So it's just these little things. And, um, when Zero Films production originally got started because I had a, a Vietnam veteran who happened to buy one of my novelties on my website and just happened to be a, a you know a reproduction of a death card. And he bought it, emails me. He says, hey, man, you know, that's the same um, death card I carried in Vietnam. And, you know, give me a little bit of a history. So, of course, I said, hey, man, that's on me and whatever else you need. It's not a problem. You know, thank you for your service. And come to find out he lived here in Central Texas and left me his phone number and I called him up and um, one thing led to another. And I said, hey, would you be interested in doing an interview? And he says, well, you, you know, you want to do it on the phone? I says, well, I guess I'm planning something a little bit better. So I contacted my photographer, Jesse, which he's also here. And his one of his best friends, Jonathan, uh, which he's the one who does all the cinematography for us. So I got him out here, went to his house. And we honestly didn't know what to expect uh, besides that this was going to be an experience. And that's what it turned out to be. And I told him, I says, I want this to be as professional in the best quality possible. This is his story. He's telling it. This is not about us. 
and it's about him and all the guys like him. And what was interesting and about uh, Johnny Hubs, which is that's the, the door gunner that we interviewed, his story was amazing because um, he kept it everything in and the battles that he fought, not just in Vietnam, but on coming back home were just amazing where it was just nobody understood this guy and he felt very passionate about telling his story and uh he was with the 229th um air mobile he on yeah as a door gunner and he was the first guy to actually learn how to uh he put a website about the 229th because he wanted the veterans to connect and 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 uh you know he said you know i couldn't find any history on my unit like it just never happened and i wanted to change that and um, so he's, you know, he's very uh, passionate about his service and he should be. So we did his uh, his interview um, and it was just an, a great experience. And what we he was so appreciative. He said, you know, this is um, I, I just can't thank you guys enough, you know, for listening to me. And that's all he wanted was just somebody to listen. And um when we posted a trailer, we got back and, and you know, we, we made this trailer and we had you know, a huge uh, uh, support. And next thing you know, we had all these veterans and other people saying, hey, you know, I need to tell my story too. And and it was just overwhelming. And we sat down and I said, hey, I think we got something really big here. And I think that we all here for a reason. And I think that we need to do this. We need to apply our skills and apply our talents so that these stories don't just vanish in time, you know, like, so, you know, these stories can be heard long after they're gone. And uh, we're extremely privileged to, to, to play a small part in this. And, uh, and matter of fact, we just interviewed another Vietnam veteran yesterday. He was a Marine grunt and uh, he, you know, he gave us a very detailed look about uh, on the inside of a Marine infantryman as, as a point man, you know, in the jungles of Vietnam uh, back in 66 or 67. And same deal. It was just another great experience. And, uh, and we find a lot of similarities too as veterans uh, about those generations, and and that's how we, you know, this. It's hard to explain it, uh, but I hope that we're gonna do a good enough job to. Hey, hey, G, you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, I, I got you, Jason. Can you I'm hear here. me? I can hear somebody. Is that G? Yeah. Did I get cut off or? Yeah, you got cut off for a second. Oh, okay. Good to go. Yeah, you're good. You're good. Yeah, you can continue, man. Oh, no, that's it. That's all I wanted to bring up, you know, about that. So that's kind of how it started. Okay. And Uh, and you're you're planning on uh, interviewing a bunch of uh, other Vietnam veterans and then you're going to release this in one video. How is that going to work? So the way we're working, these are just short films. Uh, The way each episode or each short film it's that person's story um because uh, we don't want to just bunch everybody up it's it's a very unique story that needs to be told in a very unique way uh you know um i mean just like the the marine grunt that that we interviewed yesterday his story and his experiences completely different from johnny who was a door gunner even the homecoming was completely different um and I know that's a subject that uh, Mike wanted to touch upon, uh, and it, and that was just interesting to see that about uh, um, just just in those in those parts. So we're we're trying to keep it where 
one short film is dedicated to one veteran, uh, and that's it, uh, because it's their story. So okay, okay, and uh, so Jason, um, I know when when you were creating your book, uh, General Propositions, I know it took you a number of years to do because it was very research intensive, and you had to interview a lot of different uh, former saw guys, and I know that. You know, getting to getting some of these guys to sit down with you and talk to you about their experiences is uh, typically something very hard to do. So, um, you yeah, know, can was, you talk uh, about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, it's one of the. It's probably the um, the most the thing I take the most pride in, um, besides actually publishing it and getting the feedback that I have. Uh, was was actually talking to these guys and. Um, it was. It wasn't as difficult at first as it might seem. Um, I basically sent um, an email to a guy. Uh, um, his name is um, uh, Mike Sotart. And I, I hope I'm saying his name correctly. Uh, but he he actually had some 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 memorabilia he was selling on eBay. Oddly enough, and I just sent him an email and I told him what I was working on and if he would be willing to to read it and just give me some feedback. Cause at this time I think I had maybe like 30 pages written. I sent it to him and it took him all of like two days to get back to me. And he just tore it to ribbons. And, and what I mean by that is I asked him to be critical of it. And he was exactly that. He was very critical of it. And he told me that basically as far as telling a story, it, it I'm good to go. But my facts, my research uh, was very, very poor. And so I stopped, and I put it down for maybe like a month or so and something inside me just kept bugging me and I picked it back up and started fresh from the beginning. And, um, the more and more I got further along, I, I like would send him chapters and he would, he would, he would, um, correct, like, like sign off on him, I guess. Um, and the, the further along I got, I just started researching people's names I found their emails. I would send them an email and tell them who I was. And I was using my school account so that it at least had some validation to it. It wasn't just a random email. And uh, and I would just kind of lay out the, the project and what my goals were and just tell them what I was working on and, and ask them if they would help me along. And that's pretty much how I did it, man. Um, one one guy led to two more guys. Those two guys led to you know three more guys each. And then before I knew it, I had this network of of veterans that I was reaching out to for any little thing. I mean, the minutia that I research now, I, I rarely ask them about their personal experiences. It's more along the lines of nowadays, it's more along the lines of, you know, hey, what does the inside of an 01 bird dog cockpit look like if you're sitting in the back seat? You know, how, how do the windows open? Uh, wh- like, what do the gauge clusters look like? How are they oriented? Where where exactly are they? You know, just, just, just and Mike knows because I've asked him, about this stuff and uh j- j- just you name the minutia i've probably gone through there at some point and tried to nail that down um so and to me the technical aspects of that are what make a story fascinating when i read a story i want to know about the technicalities of it but not so much to the point where it pulls the reader out of the story or you lose the characters in there because then you're it's like reading a field man well, that's not really what I'm out to do. So, um, yeah, for me, talking to guys like Mike Stahl, um, guys like, 
Lee Birkins, and uh, you name it, any of those guys, they are. That is what makes for me the project so much fun to do. So, Mike uh, and and Jason, you know, you're. I know you you're very humble, and you like to say that you're not an expert. Um, so let's talk about SOG a little bit. Uh, let's talk about what the Green Berets were doing in Vietnam and then what the the role of Mac V SOG was and why it was it was so dangerous uh, <clears throat> for recon teams who were in Mac V SOG. I, I, Mike, I think Mike should take this one. Uh, he's he's uh, been there, done that type, and he's the one that should tell this one. Hey, Mike, you there? Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Waiting on Go. you, Captain. Uh, okay. Uh, well, uh, to start with, we were working cross-border, top secret. Uh, nobody knew what we were doing. Uh, small teams, uh, I think, is the best example. And, of course, the longer we ran, the more dangerous it got because the NBA got clued into what we were doing, and they set out counter-recon teams. Uh, but the the danger factor, I think, is uh, is is underlined by the fact that almost every member of SOG that went on the ground either ended up wounded, dead, or missing. Uh, so that sort of indicates it was a dangerous job. Uh, when I think a good example again is my last mission, where I was uh, a team leader of a seven man team. And when they extracted us, they estimated there was probably three reinforced NVA divisions that were trying to get at us. So, yeah, definitely very dangerous work. Uh, we used to talk about, before I started running recon, uh, when I was working Intel and doing the after-action reports and the briefings, uh, we actually talked that, and I understand there was actually some official talk about anybody in SOG that went on the ground uh, deserved a bronze star with V just for getting off the damn helicopter. Uh, never came to pass, but uh, yeah, probably one of the most regular dangerous jobs in Vietnam was running recon across the border. I'd have to, I'd, I'd echo that as well. Um, the more guys I talk to um, say the same thing. They say that anybody that willingly accepted a, a position on a recon team uh, spun up and went off, went across the fence and got actually got off the helo. Um, that's a big deal, a big big deal. Uh, and and you know the the long like Mike said, the longer that these guys were were going in there and inserting into these targets, the the more adept the NVA were getting at these teams and uh, cornering them. They would they would drive them towards ambushes. They would drive them towards terrain features that would bracket them and basically make it impossible for them to get out so that they could press them and kill them where they were because they knew that the recon guys were not going to go. They weren't just going to lay their guns down and, you know, and, and accept uh, life as a POW because it just, first of all, they're, they're not wearing American uniforms. They're not carrying any sort of identification. So uh, the, these guys were basically killed on site for being spies and all the rest of it. So um, the Geneva Conventions if the NBA actually followed uh, those rules, they would not be privy to those rules. They would not be um, treated accordingly to those, to those rules. So 
Um, so that's a big deal, man. And um, a lot of guys that that I've spoken to liked the smaller recon teams as dangerous as it was because when you worked with the larger hatchet force comp- uh, platoon and company formations, uh, you were they were much louder. They required more ships to lift them into a target area. Um, these guys were basically going in there to stir up as much trouble as they could. Uh, the hatchet force, you know, they would go in there and they would they would uh, do what um, what is called SLAM, which stands for search, locate, annihilate, and monitor. And so they would go on these big SLAM missions. Uh, sometimes they would insert onto hilltops with freaking chainsaws and sandbags, and they would and recoilless rifles and mortars and all everything else. And uh, and they would they would fell trees and build bunkers and they would just sit there with recoilless rifles and RPGs and laws and machine guns and just wait for for the NVA to come to come party and they would blow trucks away and drop bombs and make a big mess and try and shut the trail down for as long as they could and um, so yeah those guys those guys caused quite a bit of ruckuses out there for sure but most of the guys that I've talked to liked running recon better than doing the hatchet force because it was just the hatchet force was was a much larger force so you were out there making way more noise and it was just more uh more likely that you were going to get shot at so can we can we talk about um why it was that the recon teams didn't have any identification and and uh things like that yeah, um, you know, you're, you're essentially fighting. Uh, a den- you're fighting in an area that's denied, so neither side would admit to being there. Uh, both sides. It's it started with the North Vietnamese being there, of course, um, because our special forces teams were working along the borders, and they knew when they and not just the special forces teams, but the regular infantry outfits when they you know when they bumped into these guys and they they were able to to hold them there for a little while and actually engage them. Eventually, the NVA would slip the noose, and they would they would run to the west. And when you're right against the border of Laos and Cambodia, uh, or even the DMZ, and those little suckers are running the opposite direction of you, you know where they're going. So, um, for them to uh, position all that material and, and personnel and, and all the you know everything, all the all the uh, the weapons and all that kind of stuff, for them to flood the, the South Vietnamese. Uh, border areas and, and, and further to the interior with all that stuff, they had to be getting it somewhere. They certainly weren't parachuting it in. They weren't, you know, uh, shipping it uh, in terms of, like, like UPS. So it, it, it was obvious where it was coming from. Um, and they actually used that trail system to, to, to fight the French as well. Uh, so, so in 64... Mac V, they, they basically understood that, that something was going on out there, that we needed to know what was going on out there, and they, they constituted what, what became SOG, and SOG's whole mission was to go out there and find, it, find those areas and, so, that, so, that, so that American air power could be brought to bear on them and hopefully shut those, um, shut those supply lines down. Yeah, and you know what... I was watching a documentary. Uh, there are several, you know, at least now in, in, in today's day and age, there are several organizations that basically go into uh, war-torn areas and they they try and demine. And what that means is they'll look for 
unexploded mines, uh, you know, let's say in Laos or something like that or Cambodia, uh, sure. because, because there's a lot of them. And, uh, right. you know, people from these small villages, you know, they're, they're doing their thing and they'll step on some of these mines and they're losing limbs and things like that. So these organizations will go in there and, and try and mitigate that risk as much as possible. And what an interesting fact is that uh, the trail that the North Vietnamese was using to run supplies was known as the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Um, there were more bombs dropped on the Ho- on the Ho Chi Minh Trail alone than uh, Americans dropped in World War II. So th- that shows you w- what the importance of that trail was. And uh, part of the the staple of the SOG mission was to run recon on that trail and uh you know just to see what the uh the north vietnamese was up to but uh mike you yes. you started out on our special forces a team and then you went into sog right yeah my my first year i started out on an a team uh spent about six months on a 102 at 10 foot uh of course uh company c was virtually right next to ccn so i knew about it and i tried to get into what was then cnc north at that time, but I was offered a job uh, that I couldn't refuse as the S5 NCO for the for Company C. Uh, so when I went back to Vietnam a year later, which of course I had a volunteer to go back so, since we only had to do one tour, when I got to Nha Trang, I knew I wanted to go to CCN uh, because it was an all-volunteer unit. And uh, uh, that, that was the strength of SOG was that we were all volunteers. We were all doing what we were doing, uh, totally aware of what was going on. I mean, you've got to understand, we would get a a mission would come down uh, that, of course, top secret. Everything we did was top secret. But it would be like something like, well, look, we're going to insert somebody into North Vietnam, and we want you to walk back. You're probably not going to make it. But, uh, you know, we're not going to plan any extractions. If you can get back, fine. We just want you to make radio contact and tell us what's going on. And guys would line up for missions like that. It was ridiculous. And it wasn't because we were suicidal. We didn't want to die. It's because we understood the importance of the mission and that by doing our job, lots of American lives were going to be saved. And also, we felt we had the skills and abilities to complete these missions without getting caught. So, uh, so can, there's, yeah. Can I? I just want to jump in and, and echo what you're saying, Micah. As far as uh, you guys wanting to do that job, um, I have a, a friend of mine who was, um, I think he was in Seventh SFG for maybe eleven years, third or seventh, I can't recall which, but um, he was in Iraq in I think 2009 and 10. And, and I asked him, um, you know, what thought about SOG, and, and he, he kind of, he told me, he, he said that those dudes hit the lottery, that you guys hit the lottery because you actually got to do what you were trained to do. And he, he was in, uh, he deployed, and um, he never once came under fire. He never once received a CIB or any of that kind of stuff. And, and he told me um, without any doubt that he, he wished that he could have taken part in what you guys had done because he felt that, that that's really what SF's role um, in his eyes, like it's what SF was designed to do, that type of mission, that type of, um, of role in a, in, a, in a theater of war. So I found that really interesting. I mean, especially kind of hindsight, knowing 
what the odds are and knowing just how dangerous it is. Um, it, it, you know, it's incredible what you guys did. Um, yeah. And, and to, to, to discuss really quick, to jump back to what you were saying, John, about the, uh, the UXO, the unexploded ordnance. Um, a lot of the munitions that recon teams would call in, they would sometimes call in, uh, CBUs, which are cluster bomb units. And some of these bomblets is basically like a, like a bomb filled with a bunch of little bomblets and it just gets peppered over an area and these little bomblets cook off, off like once they're on the ground, they just, you know, they just explode and sometimes they don't explode. So when a recon team, when that ordinance was used in a, in a certain area, uh, a recon team would, would mark that area on their map so that they knew not to go into that area because if those bomblets uh, didn't explode upon impact or however they were set, then, um, and you go, bumbling around in that area you have a pretty good chance of stumbling into one of these bomblets and getting killed by your own your own ordinance so um so when they would come back they would they would you know spread you know they would they would have these powwows with other one zeros and other teams that were that were going into a certain area and they may not know necessarily know what their mission sets were uh but they needed to know where uh cbus had been dropped to in, a, in an effort to avoid those areas and the good thing for sog is that in these areas where they were working at, um, there really weren't any friendly forces. I mean, I mean, they're, they're, the locals were were um, were were either running out or they were pressed into service. Um, you know, it's it's pretty sticky, man. Like it, it was a bad deal for those people. And, and um, so, so, but for the good thing about for a SOG recon team or a hatchet force operation is that when you ran into somebody, he's pretty much the bad guy. So. Um, so they didn't have to worry about a whole lot of friendly fire as long as they knew where the recon teams were. Um, and, and also, you know, where that, where that ordinance had been dropped before. So, um, yeah, you know, that's, uh, it's pretty unique, pretty unique situation for, for, for a military unit that's engaged in that type of warfare. Yeah. And, uh, one thing I wanted to say was, I, I just thought it was interesting how you brought up that your, your friend who was a, a modern day special forces soldier, you know, has said something like he wished he was able to run recon in Vietnam or like those type of operations. Because I think, you know, similar to how to G's point of view is, uh, you know, G being a Marine. But what I've noticed about a lot of uh, GWAT Special Forces guys is that they're all pretty big history geeks. And a lot of them grew up... Um, you know, reading whatever book about SOG that was was available or, um, you know, and, and, you know, there were some movies out about Vietnam and special forces in Vietnam. And a lot of the, the GWAT special forces guys, like, you know, the guys in the, the mid-30s to early 40s uh, age range really grew up idolizing these guys um, as kids. Yeah, you know what I mean? They're, they're, they're students of history. Um, yeah. The, the Because, and I think when you... You know, no, um, not to discourage anyone or not to to throw shade on anyone that's in a uh, conventional unit. Um, but I think when you were when you are a part of a unit that is uh, uh, that is soft, uh, you want to learn about the roots of that unit, where it's from, the history that that it's steeped in. Uh, and I think a lot of guys uh, that go through the queue or they go through buzz. They they have guys there that that lead them on, and they 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 name drop and they talk not in a bad way. I don't mean name drop in a bad way, but they remind their students about the men that came before them and why that's important. 
And that's, you know, in my opinion, as, as a civilian man, that's important. Um, I don't need to be in the military to understand that it's important to understand the men who came before you, you know. So um, that's important for anybody that's in the military. But, but particularly in a soft unit, uh, when you have the, such high caliber of men, um, you, being a student of history, uh, it, it, to me, is important. And, and like I said, that, that really... Uh, extends beyond the, the realm of SF or, or SOF in general, but but um, I think that's probably why a lot of these guys are students of history, uh, because really uh, Special Forces' first test uh, was in Vietnam. Same thing with uh, with SEALs. Um, so um, yeah, I, I think it's. Uh, I would totally agree with you, man. A lot of guys that I talk to uh, that come from that background are they understand the history and, and what it's all about. Yeah, and one one thing I wanted to add, if I may, um, in regards to, you know, you were talking about the history. Uh, I think one of the things that really essentially pissed us off is uh, that we want to do, like, follow in our past generation's footsteps. Uh, you know, as a Marine, everybody, you know, Marines are all gung-ho and everything. Uh, but there's a reason for that, because... When you're in a war zone like nowadays um, and you look back about, you know, the army that stormed Normandy or, you know, Marines that went on Iwo Jima and went out there and just pretty much kicked some fucking ass. uh, Why can't we do that? You know, that's Mm. that's what it is. It feels like we we are capable of doing what they're doing, but we're held back because of politics or rules or, or whatever it may be. And it's kind of like, you know, you're training a dog to fight and then you just keep them in a cage and never let them out. And I, and I know a lot of veterans uh, struggle with that uh, because they feel like they get cheated um, from doing their job and they want to do their part. You know, a lot of guys that say, hey, I joined the infantry or the SFs or whatever it may be to do my part and to do my job. You're training me to do this, but you're not letting me do it. And I think it's demoralizing in, in short, uh, especially when you look back, you know, in history where uh, – you know, perfect example, why couldn't we use flamethrowers in Iraq? I mean, it definitely would have made my job easier, I can tell you that. You know, why, you know what I mean? Things like that. And I think that the politics in, in a whole forget that you got to have men out there like like Mike who have to go out there and do the dirty jobs that nobody wants to do, the, you know, because right now everybody's afraid of reality, you know. Um, and, uh, that's just how I feel about it, and that's what I, I have been seeing. Uh, I was, I guess, kind of lucky enough that I went early in the war and the rules weren't as tight. But when I meet a Marine or a soldier or anybody that says, yeah, you know, I'm out there, but I can't shoot anybody unless I'm getting shot at or I have to go on a patrol holding a, a stop sign, it, it's just mind-boggling, in my opinion. And I think it just completely demoralizes what the armed forces and what these young men have to do out there. Um, so that's just my two cents on that. And uh, G, I know you actually, cause you said you were like, you were in Iraq during the earlier stages, but you were in Fallujah and Ramadi and, and those are pretty, those are pretty bad areas at the time. And I know, uh, you guys are getting into a lot of contact, um, a lot of ambushes. I'm not sure if IEDs were as widespread at the time. Uh, was, was that something that you guys were dealing with? No, IEDs, IEDs definitely were, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like it's like Colonel Ralph Peters said. He's got that, that famous video. I don't know. I think it came from Fox News. He said yeah. that what we need to do is we need to identify who we're fighting. We need to, we need to call it what it is. 
we need to stop fucking around and being PC about this shit. And he said that ultimately we need to get the lawyers and the politicians out of the fucking targeting cell and let our guys go out there and do their damn jobs because they're being trained to do these jobs and and they want to do these jobs. It's why they joined. And so yeah. so we've got people that that don't understand uh, how wars are fought and they're they're making rules. Um, it's just, it's, it's absurd. And, and what happens is our enemies become emboldened and become empowered by that because they understand how we're, our, 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 um, how we're, how, how things are structured for us to engage and to fight. And they, they use that against us and yeah. no, gee, and you, you could probably expound on that better than anybody could. Uh, yeah, man. I mean, uh, it's, it's, uh, if I'm understanding the question, right, you're talking about how the enemy is fighting and how they're using our rules against us. Is that what I'm getting? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and, um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, being out there, it's, uh, it's one thing when you have a front line, you have uniforms and all that good stuff, but it's another thing when you get thrown to the mix and you have to sit there and pick out who's good and who's bad. My opinion, they're all bad. That's just my thing. And uh, I didn't trust a single soul out there. It didn't matter who it was. But that's because of the situations that you encounter and then you see, uh, you have to think that way. And sometimes you have to make a call, And uh, but it's quick for somebody who's not there to sit there and pick apart your decision uh, when you know, you're on the ground and you have a split-second decision to do you know, what was necessary. Um, and that's another that's another the fact that's demoralizing and the enemy knows that you know the enemy knows that we're not gonna bomb a mosque well so they're gonna sit there and shoot us from a mosque but then when we finally decide to drop some jade ends on it you know they figure out okay well what else they can do and at the end of the day again it's just to me it's just the way i see it is just the politics that just tie our hands on our balls and uh, expect us to fight um, a war that if, if wars were fought the way that the personal ground would want to fight them, it would be a whole different story, you know. Uh, but because of the, you know, no good decision was ever made on a swivel chair. That's one quote that I heard. And uh, mm. especially when it comes for guys on the ground, you know, you can't sit there and say, well, you can shoot this guy and you can do this, and but you cannot do this. And why not, man? Um, and uh that's just how I feel about this whole situation, and, and it's very irritating because uh, um, essentially some of the command that you have, they don't really back you up on your decision. The only guys you can trust is the guys literally next to you um, because anybody can sit there and spin a story about how things turned out, um, and and the media doesn't really help on that. I mean – um, and it just makes it overall nightmare, uh, in regards to fighting a war. So, um, that's just the reality of it in, in, in essential. And one thing that I wanted to, to ask to Mike, if, if I may, uh, what Jason was talking about, how, you know, the NBA or the VC that were, you know, going into Laos and then, you know, uh, going into Vietnam, doing attacks and come back. And then finally, you know, SOG went out there and did their job. What I was going to ask was the idea or concept of SOG was that, did that start from the military itself or was the politician, the politics that said, hey, we have an issue. We need to, to deal with that. And I was just curious how, you know, how did that uh, that happen? Well, well, gee, you got to go back to uh, Bay of Pigs 
actually when the CIA screwed up that and uh, they decided to turn all military operations, uh, active military operations over to the military. And then you've got uh, Kennedy with the, you know, giving us the Green Beret and giving us that mission. So it pretty much came out of just the need, even though our rules of warfare said we were restricted to fighting strictly ground war within South Vietnam. Uh, as we've talked about, when the enemy's massing on the other side of the border, you've got to know what's going on. So uh, smarter minds prevailed, and we bypassed Congress. Uh, and, but then even we were restricted to going only within seven miles across the border by the, uh, what the heck was his name? The uh, ambassador to Saigon. Yeah, yeah I so. His, I forget his yeah. name. And, and they actually would, they would actually uh, approve missions with the ambassador to Laos or to, I think maybe even Cambodia, I forget, to expand SOG's reach. Uh, no, 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 we, we had no contact with those guys. We had problem in Cambodia with, with uh, Sunil Hook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because uh, uh, we didn't want to step on his toes, so uh, that's one of the reasons uh, we couldn't use air support in Cambodia. We could use it in Laos, but we couldn't leave bomb craters in Cambodia, so all our ordnance down there had to be uh, less obvious. Uh, and the same with Cambodia, uh, Laos. Uh, Laos is one of the countries where we're still not liked over there because of the path at Laos. Uh, but uh, it was it was a need. We had to know what was going on. Uh, I really don't know who made the decision, but it was approved without Congress knowing about us. So technically, all of us that went across the border were actually war crimes and could have been prosecuted. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Man. Yeah, because uh, we, we were breaking Congress's rules, right? Yeah, if any if any politicians had any idea what Sog was actually up to, uh, holy shit, uh, that would be <laughs> that would be a real and, mess. And here's an interesting problem we had too, because uh, we were getting getting information about troops massing in Laos or whatever. Uh, we, you know, when I was doing the debriefings, I'd write the after actions reports. I'd go to Saigon to SOG there. The problem was, how do we get this information in a timely manner to the field commanders without it going all the way through the Pentagon? And mm. and 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 then how did we get that information? Because we weren't there. So so right. SOG guys, uh, you know, were were. We're sitting there right within the units that are in danger, so we had to find back-channel ways to, you know, break security and tell unit commanders on the ground that troops were massing on the other side. So, so the whole top-secret and compartmentalizing thing got to be a problem also. And uh, wow. one thing I wanted to throw in there, uh, you know, th there are some similarities with the, the GWAT um, you know, you're, you're, it's this counter and terror, counter terrorism, this counter um, insurgency, uh, which is similar to in some aspects to the the Vietnam War. But something that Mike said uh, on a previous episode was that uh, SOG had like a level of autonomy that other units didn't have. Like, so G, you know how you said like you're you'd have to get shot at first or. You know, you really have to do some hard thinking to figure out who's the enemy or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And then Jason said, like, the way SOG was operating was there were 
you know, deep behind enemy lines. So they knew there were no friendly forces there. So if they ran into somebody, they knew it was a bad guy. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, there's some similarities, but there are also some differences in, in the way they fought. And obviously the terrain made a big difference as well, you know, versus a, a jungle versus a de- desert is different kind of warfare. Sure. You know? No, I completely agree on that. I mean, uh, I mean, even, you know, when I mentioned about the early days of the war and the RREs, I mean, for example, like Ramadi itself, I mean, yeah, there were some civilians, but the majority of it was just a free fire zone. And uh, and I remember when we had to deploy there, you had guys literally trying to re- extend or re-enlist just to go out there and, and, and do that, uh, which, was, which was pretty interesting it, um, because everybody knew it was a bad area, but that's what we signed up for. That's what we wanted to do, and that's what we were going to do. So we weren't really too restricted on certain things. I mean, Fallujah was completely different in comparison to Ramadi. Uh, Fallujah was more of a, uh, you know, try to, you know, getting, you know, do – it was essentially more of a counterinsurgency with a lot of civilian population because when I got there, it was right after – the Phantom Fury assault, and uh, we were just trying to, you know, stable. We were running stability, security, and stability operations uh, to get the city under control again, and 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 uh, you know, pretty much square the city away from after the fighting. But Ramadi was more of a um, was more of an epicenter of kind of like a last stand, and uh, so for us, you know, the REs were extremely light in in that sense i mean i remember when we were there we would have priority on airstrikes like if baghdad or somebody else called airstrikes and we called them we would get them um that was just how important it was but it also it it showed how um how much freedom that we had um on certain aspects compared to other units and other locations and whatnot so uh, with that being said yeah you're right definitely the location and and the mission definitely changes and it definitely helps when you don't have higher ups that you know come come around and gotta bug the shit out of you you know what i mean so um it it just makes things a a little bit easier but we got the job done and that's what's important i mean when we got there we were sustaining almost 85 attacks a week by the time we left we didn't have a single shot fired in in about a month so that's a huge, a huge gap. But what made that possible? It wasn't because we were just different type of Marines and we were better. It wasn't that. It was the fact that the rules were, you know, going accordingly to what the the uh, the mission was. That's essentially what happened. Uh, so um, I think like the, the the rules and regulations and whatnot uh, need to be dictated accordingly. But the way they are now, they're just. They're just, you know, they're just restricting us from from doing our jobs. So, gee, what what year was it that you were in Ramadi? Was that like 05 or something? I was there in uh, 06. Yeah. Okay. 2006. Okay. So, so actually in Ramadi during that time, the Army was there and the Navy was there as well, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, we had the Army was there. I remember we did a couple of... Uh, um, uh, like I wouldn't say joint mission. We we're mo- morally just providing security, but for you know we had a SEAL team out there. Uh, there were uh, I'm sure there was Delta out there and Green Berets. I mean it was a hotbed because there was also a lot of high priority targets there. So uh, it's not like we saw them obviously, and uh, they they were definitely out there doing the work though. So it, you know so um, yeah they were definitely out there. So hey. Uh- so just just real quick, um, the ambassador that we were talking about, Mike, um, 
Yeah. Uh, does this name sound familiar? Henry Cabot Lodge? Uh, no, Lodge was Secretary of Defense, wasn't he? Uh, U.S. Ambassador to South Vietnam, Henry Cabot Lodge. Uh, uh, but that is during the early days, I think. Lodge, yeah, okay, Lodge was earlier. No, the guy, uh, I want to say his name started with an H. Um, uh, I, I, I can, Nixon, I can... Nixon appointed Graham Martin to uh, Ambassador to Vietnam. Um, yeah, I, I just, for some reason, I was under the impression that, that we worked, uh, that, that those, that SOG had to clear, uh, their cross-border operations with the Laotian ambassador. Um, no, uh, I might be mistaken. Yeah, I, I'm going to say you're absolutely wrong on that because we didn't even like letting the Vietnamese know what we were doing because we had leaks within SOG. So, right. the, well, you know, there, there's just no way that I'm ever going to believe that we we involved anybody that didn't have an absolute need to know uh, that that we were doing that. Yeah, I, I'll tell you what, I'm going to um, I'm going to dig that up because I'm interested in that, too. And I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, um, I'm going to dig that up when we when we finish, you know, and I'll get back to you in the next couple of days. But um, the um, uh, well, the 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 counterpart, the Vietnamese counterpart to or the South Vietnamese counterpart to. Tasag was STD, which was Strategic Technical Directorate, and uh, there was a leak within the STD um, side of Sog. So you're absolutely right about that, and that's proven. And um, and they actually uh, weeded that guy out. And I actually wrote about that in, in my book, but um, I did it in a much more, um, more. It was entirely fiction that portion of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll definitely get back to you on the ambassador part because I'm I'm pretty uh, pretty interested in that. Yeah, it, I'm glad you brought it up because Jason, before I read your book, I I think I read like three SOG books or so, something like that. Like um, I read some stuff from uh, John Stryker Mayer. Um, you know, he yeah. had, he had like some big big SOG books, and uh, and then when I read your book. You know, I, I I got up to the point where they were discussing a leak in in uh, things like that, and then it started to make sense because I know that, and and this is something that Mike has experienced personally, where SOG teams would try and insert, uh, you know, into a, a pre-approved uh, location and basically get shot off the the landing zone, and, and basically what that means is is like they would they'll come in the the helos will drop into an area where there's uh, you know, there's no trees so that they can fast rope down or, or jump. Not, I'm sorry, not fast rope. They could jump, jump down into the jungle. Or and, repel. We didn't or, fast rope. We repelled. Right, right. And um, and they're basically getting shot at. Uh, you know, as they're trying to insert. So mm-hmm. it, it made so much sense. I'm like, okay, so they had to have known at times. Uh, oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like when they were inserting, and and Mike, I know that that's something that you personally experienced. And and what was that like for you? Well, uh, my first my first mission where I went in as a one one with uh, when I first joined our team, Michigan, we got shot off the LZ. But you don't know whether that was a leak or whether you know my time later in the war with the Vietnamization and the fact that they were had the spotters on the LZ. You don't know, you know, really what was going on. But uh, again. I have read reports where some of these teams went in and the NBA were new team nam- names were calling out information yep. that, that, that they had to get back channel some way. So, yep. and, and, and I know from, from working my first year over there uh, that 
you know, things with the Vietnamese were not always as tight as they should have been. So uh, there's, there was just no way to keep it totally clean. Uh, now, we didn't have as many Vietnamese in SOG, and uh, obviously in the talk in that, we didn't have any, you know, everything was very tight. There were no civilians in there. But we did have uh, have the Vietnamese look long duck Viet, their Vietnamese special forces with us. So uh, anything's yeah, uh, possible. The uh, Mike, that's uh, I was going to bring that up. And you're you're not the only one that's heard that story. There was a I don't remember the name of the team, but they, those guys inserted. It was a CCN team, and they inserted, and they had the NVA um, talking to them over the radio. And they were calling them by their first and last names. They were calling them by the team names, and they knew, ba- like basically the, the the exact mission that they were there to to, to uh, conduct. And um, and I believe the one zero got pretty bold and um, told them to, that if they wanted a fight, they could come and get them. And and because they already knew pretty much where they were where they were at, because they were pretty much still on the LZ. So the one zero was pretty pissed about it. And, uh, and, and he told them to come on up and, and let's party. Um, meanwhile, uh, they're also radioing for extraction. So, uh, they were able to extract and, uh, nothing, they, I don't think, I think they maybe took like light ground fire coming out, but, uh, but that team was able to get out. But yeah, it was pretty, uh, pretty fucking hairy, man. I mean, I don't know what that would be like. That's nuts. Well, you got to keep in mind too, that, that by the time I was running recon, we knew that, that. If nothing else, we were bait, that if the NVA could catch us, which they usually did, they weren't going to try to wipe us out right away. They were going to try to pin us down because they knew we were going to get all this air support. There were going to be fast movers, spads, slicks, gunships coming in there. And those were the big prizes. You know, if they could get a slick coming in to get us, if they could shoot it down, uh, that was worth it. And, uh, so they, they would actually not overrun us, just keep us pinned down to, to keep all the air support coming in there. Uh, when on my last mission, uh, it took them four hours to suppress the anti-aircraft enough to get the slicks in. And then the slick the second slick that came in got its windshield shot out, getting the other half of the team out. So, uh, so yeah, pretty hairy and uh, <laughs> enough trouble without... without people getting information uh that they shouldn't have yeah and you know one thing I, I think it's important to note you know as we're discussing vietnam and specifically sog um was the the bravery of the pilots who were uh inserting and extracting uh you know sog team members or you know there were other special reconnaissance units um during vietnam such as uh project delta which is was also primarily uh, made up of Army Special Forces, um, and and really the uh, the the helicopter pilots really showed an incredible level of bravery uh, to head into and and like Mike, like you said, by the time you were running recon, the NBA was was just trying to draw in these helicopters or something that they could shoot out of the sky, and and the the pilots knew this and they went in anyway, and I think uh, well, you it's, know, it's I- worth noting. I, I like to tout the bravery and, and, and danger of, of the guys on the ground, but we were combat troops. We had guns. We were shooting back. When it comes right down to it, there were no braver people in Vietnam than those damn air crews because, I mean, they would fly in 
and it just didn't matter. A pilot's coming in, a round comes through the bubble, takes his co-pilot's head off. He doesn't lose concentration. He's in there to get those troops off the ground. And I don't think there's any more braver thing to do than to... And, and these guys would sometimes get shot down, get retrieved themselves, go back and get another bird and fly right back in. That's crazy. Uh, so, wow. so, so it's just there were more of them. There's, you know, it's, it's like plane crashes, you know. It, when one happens... It's sensational, and that's the way, you know, the, the SOG guys on the ground were. But all of those pilots, those air crews, uh, those are the guys that really deserve all the credit for bravery. Yeah, and, and G, I know you just, you mentioned earlier that you interviewed, a, 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 it was a door gunner for your, your project, your special video project? Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, and, and and one thing I definitely wanted to highlight uh, is my thank you for your service and and for your sacrifices. And I, uh, um, you know, and I and I mean that from you know the bottom of my heart on on that. Um, and um, but it, in in regards to the air crew, I completely agree with. Had a very dangerous job, but they were very. It, what mattered to them was getting the guys out there. And when I spoke with Johnny, which, you know, as you mentioned, was a door gunner, he said, you know, our job was to, you know, protect and to make sure that the guys on the ground got what they needed. It didn't matter what happened to us. It was. I apologize for that. <laughs> That's all right. Sorry. Hold on. I'm sorry. One second. I have some interference. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, I apologize. Um, so what I was saying with, with Johnny, um, he he definitely uh, valued the guys on the ground a lot more than, than, than anything else. And uh, uh, I read somewhere that the life expectancy of an air crew was roughly about 18 minutes from takeoff. And uh, even uh, I believe it was almost 30 seconds in a hot LZ. I mean, that's just what I heard. I don't know if it's uh, – and I believe it. I mean, I can only imagine – um, but you know, he, he would tell me, you know, he was, he went into very detail about being a door gunner and, uh, and, uh, you know, the dangers of it. And he mentioned one thing during the battle of Anlock that they were landing, you know, guys and trying to get guys out while, you know, they had NVA tanks shooting at them. Uh, and it didn't matter. They, they just didn't care. They went out there. If they got shot down it, as Mike mentioned, you know they will go back, go, go back out there and get them. So um, it was a very interesting to see, um, you know, the camaraderie and the respect, the mutual respect that they have. Uh, but I know for a fact that he thought of the guys on the ground that that was the world to them uh, to make sure that they got what they needed anytime, any day, didn't matter. So. Yeah, gee, you need to uh, check my website. I've got some videos posted there, and there's a couple that are tributes to uh, Vietnam and to the chopper crews. That uh, and one's a poem, and it really expresses it quite well. Uh, you probably enjoy watching some of that stuff. I, I sure will. And uh, one thing that I also wanted to to bring out there, uh, if Mike, if that's something that you might be interested in a project that we're doing, uh, we would definitely love to, you know, to have you on board. Um, 
you know, to tell your story. I know in the beginning of the show, you, you were mentioning about, you know, the homecomings and everything. And, and I was wondering if maybe, you know, I, I was just really curious to touch upon that, if, if, if you would like, in regards to, you know, your homecoming or what did you see within the Vietnam community coming back? Um, you know, how did, you know, how did the world and the nation receive them? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, someday when you got a couple of days, we'll talk about it. Okay. <laughs> okay <laughs> no problem. <laughs> well, yeah, see, that's one of the biggest problems you were talking about, you know, the guys wanting to tell their stories. And, and I was thinking about it then when we came home, there was nobody wanted to listen. So we got no catharsis, you know, not only the bad stuff, but the good times, all those stories. Uh, I had nephews that were within a year of my own age that served in Vietnam that were back in the States at the same time I was. We didn't talk about Vietnam. It was such a taboo topic. And, and so, you know, Vietnam veterans have been carrying this, let's call it a burden around, this wanting to share for years and uh uh it just it just never happens and so you know as we get older it's it's like our lives were lived for nothing because nobody knows what we did make sense well go ahead i'm sorry no i just said it makes sense to you yeah no it, it does and uh and that's another reason why um you know we started project to you know to give a an actual fe- accounts of the experiences and, and one of them that we're really trying to bring out is the you know the, the homecomings and uh how they were treated back to the world so give you a very broad example when johnny came home i mean he landed in san francisco i think he got back in 72 and you know got sped on and everything until he would he would tell me that uh, um you know they would like hey you don't need to wear a uniform in at the airport he says well but that's what I have when I come back. I mean, I, you know, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to wear? And why should I not wear my uniform with pride? And then all of a sudden, I'm, he told me a Marine just, you know, put his hand on his shoulder, says, hey, man, you, you don't you don't need to go there. They just don't don't you don't want to be mixed into that. And and they, and they went and uh, sat on the plane. And uh, he, he told me that a flight attendant came up to him and said, uh, you know, the pilot says that you guys need to get first class uh, seats without even knowing what happened in the terminal. And he said, you know, that just meant the world because it just completely erased what what happened, you know, just half an hour prior. But then again, I also spoke with the gentleman from yesterday that was a Marine Grunt, and he was mad at VAC because he got seriously wounded. And he told me that, you know, when I got back, um, I believe it was in 67, uh, he didn't deal with any of that because he was just went straight to the hospital. I believe he, he went to El Toro and all, and, uh, uh, and then Wichita Falls. And then he got out. And if he told he was a Vietnam vet, people would just buy him drinks. And and he never really saw, uh, experienced those things in, in regards. But, uh, Gene, um, but yes, you got to remember that the, that the the attitude of the American people didn't turn south until after Ted of 68, when uh, Walter Cronkite yep. decided we were losing the war. So yep. right. So so it went, you know it was the build up in sixty seven sixty eight was when I went over on my first tour, and then we had Tet, and that decided we were going to have the drawdown, the Vietnamization. So when I went back sixty nine seventy, I was there for the Vietnamization, and it's that homecoming that was so bad. So so right. the guys that came back before Tet, they didn't experience what we did. 
Right. But I, I was, I was, out of curiosity, was, um, I mean, after all the, you know, the protests and, and just the, 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 the sentiments that the country had towards veterans, uh, did it just, so if somebody came back in, say, 67 or 66, and then, you know, uh, let's say in 75, even though he was still a Vietnam, I mean, obviously still a Vietnam vet, did he get treated the same regardless? Uh, did he, did they see the same thing or, or was it more that it was just seen, you know, when they got back and then, uh, I don't know if I'm explaining the question, right? Or yeah, 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 you are. Now I'm going to tell you this guys that stayed in the military didn't have as much trouble. Okay. The guys that stayed in the military after Vietnam and did their, their 20 or whatever, those of us that got out early had the problems because we were dealing with the civilians. But it was, in general, all Vietnam veterans after Tet were treated badly. Uh, and I can, I can attest to that at least through the 80s when I was still being uh, dissed for being a Vietnam veteran. Uh, that's, and it was Reagan was the one who, who finally said in the early 80s, we've got to stop blaming the warrior for the war. Mm, but by right. then, the attitude had been fixed in the national psyche, and, and it was pretty much just lip service. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> I've, uh, I've, I've got an interesting facts page here. If anyone wants to check it out, this listing, um, you can go to uswings.com. And just what we were talking about earlier, um, the myth is that uh, the common belief is that most Vietnam veterans are drafted. And the actual fact is that two-thirds of those who served in Vietnam were volunteers. In fact, two-thirds of the men who served in World War II were drafted. And it says that approximately 70% of those killed in Vietnam were volunteers. And uh, of those men that, that served, or of those veterans that served, um, this is um, 74% said that they would serve again even knowing the outcome, hindsight 2020. So, you know, um, definitely... There's a lot of misconceptions about Vietnam, and, and I would encourage anyone that's the least bit interested in what, you know, what some of these misconceptions are and what the actual facts are to go to U.S. Wings or just, just Google it, and you'll find something out there. Um, well, then, no, it's let, funny let, you let, mentioned that because I actually – go ahead. I, I, was, I just wanted to mention, I mean, it's, it's, it's also the media. The la last year or this year, whenever we had the uh, Vietnam Veteran Day thing, you know, the, 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 the day they honored it, yeah. uh, uh, the news brought it up and the film they showed to re remember Vietnam was that little girl running with the napalm burns. <laughs> that, oh, Jesus. that was the, was the, the, the picture that turned America against the American servicemen because we were all of a sudden baby killers. And so that's the picture they showed th this last year to commemorate the war in Vietnam. You know, it's and not you know like what, World War II where they talk about Normandy or, or the, you know, whatever. It's, it's mm -hmm. still the news media today shows the bad side. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that about that picture that I actually um, found out was that the bombing of that, that village wasn't even caused by the U.S. It, it was actually by, from what I heard, it was actually the South Vietnamese that actually bombed the crap out of that village. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, that this, I've that heard that too. Was spin, yeah, yeah. That was a bullshit yep. picture. Yeah, exactly. And uh, one thing I wanted to touch that, that you mentioned. You spoke with with uh, Bob that he was the the Marine grunt. He told me 
really stuck out to me. He said that go out at intervals and uh, try to clear uh, not hooches, but kind of like um, I forget the way he mentioned it, but um, kind of like bunkers or little spider holes, I guess you can say. But anyway, so they would throw smoke grenades in there to flush people out. And then he came, they came to find out, it says you can't be doing that because it's against Geneva Convention. So they started throwing frags in there. And he's like, <laughs> you know, how much sense does that make, you know, that at least with a smoke, hopefully, you know, if there's some kids or women, they didn't have to get blown up. But now it's like I have to clear that thing and I don't know who the hell is in it and I'm going to frag it. And uh, he's like, but how much sense does that make? You know, Geneva says you can't use a smoke because it's cruel. So, well, then I got to frag them. And, you know, it was just those little things that really got to me. I had an an actual example of that on my first contact because uh, we had we had uh, uh, probably some NBA dudes. But that went down into a spider hole, a bomb bomb shelter inside a hooch. But there was a baby down in there crying. We could hear that baby crying and we couldn't use tear gas we had tear gas, CN and CS, but we couldn't use it. And one of my Vietnamese guys threw a damn frag into the hole. And, uh, and it was a dud. It didn't go off. But then somebody else had set the hooch on fire, so we had to get the hell out of it. But you're exactly right. Some of these rules are so dumb, they force people to do things they shouldn't have to yep. do. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's the that's the tragedy. That's the tragedy of it. And especially when you involve the media, um, you know, because it's it's really I remember, for example, when I did my tour in Iraq and Ramadi, our battalion commander specifically said we do not want any media out there because it happened with one incident, which I won't get into many details, but it was portrayed where it was completely different and made us look bad when the situation was justified and um and that resonates you know nobody cares um you know if you you know uh nobody cares about the good things you do they don't care about the schools that we built or the food that we gave i mean we'd be out there trying to give these guys medical equipment and we'd be getting shot at as we're as we're literally throwing the the supplies off the trucks you know to help these guys out and we're getting shot at in the process you know but nobody talks about that but God forbid you you know you smoke the wrong guy or the newsman happens to be there like the guy in Fallujah where he just have, he just goes out there and pops the guy in the head and made it look like oh they're just, I mean the guy actually got investigated and uh, the marine got investigated but then I from what I heard it dropped charges um, and, and that's the thing it's just like how the media perceives certain they they can put a spin on it and people will buy it and that's what's and that's what's sad because. If you look at World War II, I I remember I saw a um uh I believe it was like not a doc well kind of like a documentary and it was the Tarawa and I'm sure I'm I'm assuming a lot of you have seen it and it just was raw it didn't cut anything out it just showed what war was like and I remember that I read somewhere that uh, the president um uh, was a uh, um. The president, man, Roosevelt, I can't remember right now. I'm just kind of blank. But he actually had to give special permission to show it in the movie theaters because they said it was pretty raw. But that, but they did it anyways because they said people need to know. And and the, the country backed it up. And the country, you know, was for the, the fighting men out there, you know, like go out there and, you know, kill Nazis and, and, and all the propaganda to, to, to get the fighting men out there to fight. 
Uh, but nowadays, everybody's worried about fucking political correctness and about whose ass they need to cover and, and make us looking at the fucking scapegoats. That's essentially what happens. And it seems like that, um, you know, Vietnam was the same way and all the other wars afterwards were the same. And, it's, it, and you want to ask yourself, what the hell happened? I mean, they want to talk about an ideology. Well, we dropped two nukes and stopped the war and finished it. You, you see where I'm going? It, it's just those type of things that it's like, what the hell happened? You know? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought it up, and and I wanna I wanna make a comparison real quick. So, you know, and and the comparison I'm gonna make is uh, it's, it's a kind of a hot topic now. Everyone's talking about it, which is police shootings, right? So. Somebody, you, you'll see a cell phone video, right? That will capture whatever is going on halfway through. Um, you won't know what started this situation. Um, yep. And the majority of people are not experts on lethal force. They're not experts on the escalation of force, and they really don't understand what the laws are. They're not lawyers either. But everybody <laughs> has an opinion, right? So. Well, yeah. In some cases, uh, a cop shoots somebody and he's in the wrong and he'll go to jail, you know, lose his badge or whatever. But in other cases, the shootings are justified, right? But the problem is, is that people, like I said, they don't have any background in any of these uh, facets. So, and then everyone has an opinion. So, I think it's a a similar uh, process when, you know, the reporters out there uh, with you guys and, you know, something happens, they put it out, and then it becomes a, a big issue. It's like, yep. you know, you don't understand war. You don't understand the use of force. You don't understand, um, you know, doing what you have to do to survive. But you have all these opinions on, on all these different things. So I think it's a it's a similar concept. And I've had debates with people um, on this, you know, on the whole police shooting thing. And, and, and some of these people are my personal friends, you know, my good friends. And it's like you, you really have to treat, and, and this is my opinion, you have to treat each case individually. You, you can't just group uh, everyone together. And, and that works both ways. You know, like, uh, you know, Donald Trump said something about uh, Muslims, right? And then the same people who are grouping all cops together will have an outrage about he's grouping all the Muslims together. And I'm like, but you're doing exactly what you're accusing someone else of doing and you don't even realize it you know what i mean so i think people need to take a step back and and think well you know i'm I'm not an expert on gunfighting and i'm not a lawyer so maybe i shouldn't maybe i should leave that to the experts you know what i mean yeah and i mean look at it like look at it right now every time some sometimes every time a tragedy happens what do people do hashtags what the fuck is a hashtag gonna do to, to resolve the situation you yeah. know what i mean and you're right it's about experts are i i one thing that stuck out to me was when was it was what, about four years ago. You remember the whole uh, Coney 2012, you know, we got to catch Coney and all that good stuff. Yeah. We're like, oh, if we raise, you know, this much or the video gets shared this much, we're going to go down and arrest them. None of that shit happened. Next thing you know, all these guys want to get on board talking about, like you said, experts. Like they're just these people who have dedicated their lives to that cause. And then when that week, nobody even remembers what the hell happened. You know yeah. what I mean? It's it's just that it's it's um it's a trend of the day. That's what yeah. the problem is. Why should yep. I listen to an opinion of somebody who saw something on Facebook? It's like, hey, I clicked like. That's my contribution. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's what the it's problem. Is. That's what the problem is right there, man. 
It's passive. It's it's something that everyone feels that if they just do this little bit, then then they've shared their opinion about it, and then that's good enough. Yeah, you're right. I and, say Mike for president. That's my thing. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know also it's it's interesting how you know the first thing that someone does when there's a tragedy in another country, whether it be a terror attack or whatever the case may be, they change their profile pictures because Facebook yeah. has a little tool. But but if something happens here stateside, I don't see anybody changing their pictures. I don't see anybody with an American flag uh, yeah. shadowed over their profile picture. So I don't do it for any of that shit, man. Like I don't, I don't, because it's just it's just, it's 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 like it's one more thing that that sheeple just kind of fall in line with. That they think that yeah. somehow that they're making some sort of difference. And I mean, I'm not standing here telling you that what I'm doing is making any sort of difference. But um, I, I'm conscious about what it does and does not mean. Right. You're looking for the word lip service. We yep. just lip, lip service to things. You know, I, I checked the box. I did my part. I, you know, I put right. the French flag over my, my photo. That's my part without actually trying to build understanding or build bridges or whatever. Uh, it's just frustrating as hell. But I want to say from somebody that's as old as I am that none of this stuff is new. It's just that we have all this social media and television. Uh, I can remember back when I first got to California for language school that, that state troopers out there were getting ambushed on the highway, that somebody would get pulled over for a light out and the cop would be walking up and somebody would step out with a shotgun and blow them away. I can remember when I got back in 1971 to Florida in Sarasota, there was a thing going on in one of the communities there where they were calling in domestic violence problems and a cop would be going up the stairs and somebody would step out and blow them away. So these things have been going on, but when it's constantly on the news, it makes it seem unusual or unusually normal. It's kind of bizarre, but it... It takes things out of proportion and it drives people crazy and it develops the in-group, out-group you were talking about it. The African-Americans against the whites, against the, the, the men in uniform, the police, and we all need to damn well work together for a change. Yeah, I'm sorry, I got carried away. No, no, it's a, it's, you brought up a great point. On the last episode, I had uh, Nick Betts on, who was a, a former Army sniper, and he was in Ramadi G, uh, probably around the same time you were. And, oh, nice. Yeah, and um, and, and you know we we talked about the Dallas shooting, and um, you know how, uh, you know the media was labeling the, the guy as a sniper because he was shooting, you know, thirty feet up or whatever, shooting cops on the street, and and Nick is a sniper, so you know he he discussed why the guy wasn't a sniper, and and just gave like a little example of a difference of a professional sniper, uh, trained sniper versus a guy like that. And and then we also spoke about the role of the media in in inciting all of this hatred and and things yeah. like that. And and just like Mike said, none of this shit is new. You know, this, these things have been happening for a long time. And if you look at the numbers of uh, police, like police getting killed in the street, um, mm -hmm. there isn't a huge difference in numbers. I mean, you know, the, the the five cops were killed in Dallas, and then these cops were shot and killed in Baton Rouge. So. In the last couple of months, yes, uh, you know, things have been a little hectic. But if you look at the larger picture, it's not as bad as everyone makes it seem. And, and the problem is, is that people don't do their research and 
you know, you're on Facebook scrolling and you see, a, you know, a, a, a repost, someone's sharing an article from the Huffington Post showing this police shooting and now, you know, you're in a, an outrage. And mm-hmm. it's like, first of all, sit down, do your research, look at the numbers, um, you know, learn learn the laws, learn that there is a such thing called the escalation of force. And, and, and this is what the, the police officers are trained to do to de-escalate a situation. Um, you know, I, I, I watched videos where, and, and there are videos where police officers are in the wrong and they should be arrested. But sure. the problem is, is when you protest over every single incident, uh, you you diminish the the uh, the cause because mm-hmm. now you're just out there every time something happens you're you're screaming and hollering when you really shouldn't and I see some videos where people are sharing it and it's like oh this is such an outrage like look how they treated this person well the person was resisting arrest so yep, once yep. once you start resisting arrest the police has the authority and it's, it's mandated by law where they can slam you on your ass they can use a taser or whatever means to to subdue you. And that is the law of the United States. So people are sharing all these videos and, and, you know, going crazy. And I'm watching the video and I'm going, you know, that was perfectly legal. I'm not an expert on the law or anything like that, but you know, I've done some research and I feel like if people just did a little more research and stopped uh, with this whole trend thing that that's going on nowadays, you know, with the, like this uh, connectivity of social media, I think it would be a lot less outrage. And to be totally honest, I think these shootings in Dallas and Baton Rouge would have not happened if yep. the media is yep. not uh, blowing smoke up everybody's ass. You know what I mean? So it's 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 really people need to stop outraging from the first thing they see and actually do some thinking for a change. Well, I, I can tell you right now. <laughs> just, just real quick, fellas, I I tell you right now that people that follow that ideology. Uh, they don't give a shit about fact. All they care about is 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 promoting their ideas, and they generally base these ideas on emotion and not fact. And when you try and present fact to these people, they shake their head no. They don't want to listen to you because it does not fit their their idea, their preconceived their, ideas exactly in their mindset about about mm-hmm. what they think they know because they are basing what they think they know on purely on emotion. And that emotion is generated by the videos they see and by all these silly ass hashtags and, and all this you, it, black lives matter or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And you know, one of the biggest dangers here, I think is to society. Uh, I go back to Vietnam again after Cali and some of the crap that went on over there. I remember a, a cartoon that showed two two grunts in a foxhole, and one of the guys was a newbie, and the old guy saying to him, welcome to Vietnam, who's your attorney? Cops today have to be having that in the back of their mind, yep. that, that split second when they have to make a decision whether to pull a weapon, whether to pull a trigger. Now they're Now in the back of their mind, there's something about, what if I'm on video? What if I get in trouble for doing this? There's oh, yeah. gonna, yep potential hesitation on the part of the police, which is going to cause more police, police problems. Uh, so, so, uh, so yeah, we got to get this under control or we're going to end up with a lot of damn anarchy with cops that don't want to go onto the street to do their job because they have to fight the people they're protecting. Yeah. And just yeah. W- one thing I want to throw in, um, 
for the individuals who are who think it's a good idea to shoot police officers, <laughs> number one, uh, it's it's only going to get you killed. Obviously, the two guys were killed, and number two is you're actually hurting African Americans, and I'll tell you why. Because what's going to happen is now cops are going to be extra jittery. They're going to be on edge. They're going to be. I mean, this is these are this is part of the job, and it's a difficult job. So, you're, what you're doing is you're essentially putting it in these police officers' minds that they're under constant threat, and you're making it worse. Now, yes. uh, there was a video of some guy associated with one of these these movements. Uh, I don't think it's it was directly with Black Lives Matter, but it was some some other you know kind of a radical movement, right? And the guy's on video saying, well, you know, there's no, you have to use violence. That's the only way things change. There was no, there's never a time where there was peaceful protests that changed anything. And I'm like, what a fucking idiot. Uh, what, ha- what happened to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? Uh, what happened to the civil rights movement in the 1960s? Yep. How about going back to Gandhi? Yeah, yep. yeah. Like, what are you there talking? You like, like run, run you, to England yeah, right out like, of India for you, peaceful protests. You obviously didn't go to class, and, um, <laughs> and 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 that's the problem because information is readily available. You know, with the this internet and and the connectivity that we have, and people are still ignorant, and it just it boggles my mind. And I'm watching hey, this John. video. Yeah, hey John, check this out, man. If common sense was a phone app, problem solved. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. We should we should make a, I a, promise, a man. Like co- common sense, go right now. Yeah, and I completely agree, man. Um, and one thing about the Dallas shooting, for example, look at the irony. People are out there protesting police brutality and all that good stuff, but when shots rang out, I didn't see a single protester going out there trying to figure out what the hell happened. No, they were trying to fucking be protected by the same guys that they were protesting against. It's just funny. They were like, we don't need cops and all this. It, it turned from, you know, uh, fuck the police to where the hell are they? You know what I mean? Right. Yep. So, we, also, yep. we also have to keep in mind here, too, that most of these freaks that do the shooting aren't normal people. Right. You know, yep. if you look if you look at their lives, they're they're desperate. They're, they've got mental health problems. They, they can't keep a girlfriend and they're just <laughs> angry people. They identify with some group and they're just looking for a reason to vent. And unfortunately, if a guy's been in the military or has been a veteran, it, that's always the first thing that's said about him. You know? Yes. And, yes. And, yep. and we also have to go back to this is not new. Uh, back during the peacetime, you know, the all-volunteer army, and I think it was actually uh, uh, not that long ago that gang members in Los Angeles were enlisting into the military learning tactics yep, and getting yep. out of the military and using them against the police. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I understand the military started a crackdown on tattoos and gang affiliation within the military. So so smart guys can go into the military, get really well-trained, and then go out and do a hell of a lot of damage under the guise of being a veteran. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're correct on that, 100%. Yeah, but if a guy goes to medical school and becomes a bad bad doctor, not all doctors are shamed. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. 
and you know it, it's it's funny because on when I had Nick Betts on a previous episode, you know, we spoke a little bit about the the shooter himself, and it's like this guy wasn't infantry, he wasn't, uh, you know, he didn't have any specialized training, and the first thing they, you know, they were talking about, oh, he was a decorated war veteran. It's like he has like some of those medals that they give to everybody, you know. It's like watch ribbons. Yeah, yeah, like just for showing up to formation, you know. It's like so. Yeah, you know, you guys got the media for the media. They have to get their facts straight, and and then just again, you know, misreporting the information uh, puts it in people's minds. Like I, I've seen on Facebook. So my Facebook is interesting because I have people who are kind of in the middle of the political spectrum. I have right wingers and left wingers. So if I go to my Facebook and just scroll down, I'll see, and it's so interesting to see, like people will repost the same speech or something or video and have a completely different take on it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just interesting. Like already the, the discussion has been brought up like, oh, well, you know, you know, these guys are ex-military. So, you know, they must be crazy. Or, you know what I mean? No, they got PTSD or some shit when that's not even the case, you know, and it just, yeah. it, it's more of the same, you know? Yeah. Hey, else, else? Oh, I'm sorry, G, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, brother. Go ahead, man. Well, I was just going to say the, the the common theme nowadays, man, is exact opposite of what guys dealt with in Vietnam. So guys that came back from Vietnam, uh, you know, like Mike said, um, and like even G was talking about earlier, talking to uh, his his um, his um, door gunner buddies, that these guys were spat on and they were treated shitty, and 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 so the exact opposite is happening now, where everyone. Who who signs the dotted line is is suddenly a hero, yeah. uh, some, you know, some sort of war hero, and 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 they've received medals for valor or whatever else the assumption is. Um, and, and essentially, these men are, are are doing a job. Yes, they did uh, they did join in a time of war when I did not. So I'm not casting shade like in that regard. But um, you have to understand what exactly constitutes a war hero. What exactly constitutes a guy simply doing his job, you know? Um, and so, for I guess when it comes back to who we're talking about this this shooter in Dallas, uh, having been a former Marine, or, or I I don't even remember if he was a former Marine. I can't remember at this point. But um, you guys are basically te- are, are saying that that um, and then the story is that that he did not have. Was not an infantryman, did not see combat and all that kind of stuff. So the assumption already is that he's he's a, a he's a combat veteran. He's received valorous decorations and all this kind of stuff, and that's simply not true. When we're trying to understand who the individual is, and you know, honestly, man, I listened to something the other day. Uh, I, I don't remember whose podcast it was, uh, but they were talking about. Um, I, it might have been Bill Burr. He's a comedian. Um, some of you guys might know him. Um, he's got this really interesting podcast where he just rambles on it. It's, it's pretty funny. And he was talking about why – I think it was his podcast. And he was talking about um, trying to analyze why people do these types of things and that, that they want to be remembered somehow in their last uh, – in their, in their final moments as, as being this type of person and doing this type of thing. And he's say, he suggested that instead of remembering who these shitheads are, why don't we dedicate like a, an hour to the victim's – uh, and, and t- until we cover all of the victims, like, you know, maybe we cover three victims per hour or something like that, or, or, or maybe this is my idea to kind of expound on what he was saying. But instead of remembering him and trying to figure out who he was, fuck that guy. Let's talk about the people who were lost. Um, you know, 
Well, one thing we... into that is that the media, man, the media, they just want the, the scoop. Oh, yeah, they want the sensationalized story. Oh, man. And they'll jump right on it, man. And, he, I, I, and I remember, like, if there was some, you know, some, some uh, uh, like, sensational news and you'd be reading it, you know, they give you the updates. And every, like, five minutes, it's like, oh, it was 10 guys. No, now it's five. Well, now it's 20. Hmm. It's like, you know, do your research, like, let the dust settle and then, you know, come up with the facts. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Because then what happens is people are like, they're like, hey, they said it was 30. No, I heard it was 70. Well, it has to be, you know, I thought it was 20. And it, you create this confusion. And then if somebody just sticks with that, he's going to carry it on. Hey, I heard 70 people got killed. When in reality, probably seven of them did. You know what I mean? And that's what yeah. creates the next thing you know, with it, like Mike was saying about social media, everything just spreads. And that's how you get all this misinformation. That's how you get, you know, all these misconceptions. Um, and one thing, you know, you were taught, I know you, you guys were talking about like how the first thing to emphasize, especially in the Dallas scenario is the, oh, he's a veteran or he's a, you know, he's a military guy. Same thing with, you know, with the guns, you know, what is the one weapon that they automatically bold that thing out mm. the AR-15, right? And it also so. comes from people that are just completely ignorant who have no idea what the AR-15 does. It's like the dipshit who said he shot an AR-15 and got PTSD. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> you read that kind of stuff and uh, it, it just it just boggles the mind on that. But it's yeah. because people have a hidden agenda and that's what they try to push out. They're like, hey, we're neutral, but AR-15s are bad. Like, you see right. what I'm saying? It's like a subliminal oh, yeah. message. Yeah, and that's absolutely. what divides the country in itself. For sure. And, and, and it's interesting that, that – so on the trip that I just took um, – I was talking to this guy. He's super liberal guy. Um, it, again, I was trying to present fact to this guy, and he he just would not accept what I was yep. saying to be fact. And I tried to explain to him, "Hey, dude, I don't have it in front of me because the Wi-Fi down here is pretty shitty. Uh, but you should probably do a little research." And then at the end of the, all this discussion that we were having, uh, he, he was like, we're, "You know, we need this revolution, and you know, I'm I'm ready to go. I've got." guns let's do it and this guy's like a hardcore liberal and i and i'm and i'm asking him like well what i mean what kind of guns do you intend to use bro because you've just told me that you don't think i should have an ar-15 so uh, tell me about the guns you intend to use to have a revolution with they just like i said it's it's based on emotion and not fact yeah no i agree and especially when you talk about liberals like that man you cannot have a discussion at all because their mind is already <laughs> set into that you can have a guy and like a liberal come up to you and says, hey, uh, let's have a discussion. All right, no problem. What do you want to talk about? Well, let's talk about the sky. He says, well, the sky is red. Well, it's blue. No, it's red. And it does, you can bring him. You can put it in his face and show all these facts. It's still going to be red. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't matter what you it's, – it's like the conversation – like the discussion never happens because he's going to be always right. That's what he thinks. It doesn't matter how many facts you put in front of it. That person is stuck on that mindset. You know what I mean? So um, there's not even that freedom of, you know, trying to change somebody's mind to actually show them um, different aspects of the whatever situation or whatever discussion you're talking about. And that's what what's angry, especially on my Instagram. I get all these guys talking about, you know, trying to push their agendas. And when we present them with the facts and they're not twisted, they're just facts. Mm-hmm. It's still not nah, well. It, it, you're just an idiot. Like that's that's the bottom line of it. That's why I just don't get in confrontations with people because, you know, even if you bash the guy's head in, he's still gonna wake up the next day and be an be an idiot. You know, so that's just the struggle, man. Yeah, it's 
it's, it's, it's always interesting. And I think Mike's chuckling in the background because he considers himself to be a liberal. Is that, is that right, Mike? (laughs) Absolutely. Not only a liberal, but a progressive liberal, liberal egalitarian. (laughs) But you you know, what's great, man, is that we could have this discourse with you, man. And and it's, you you know, you're a factual guy. So, you know, you're going to invite facts and you're going to, you're going to argue from a position of fact. And I know that about you. So, Really, in, in that regard, politics is really not, not really uh, a, a factor because we're talking about facts. Right. right. Well, one thing that you should you know should be made to note is that there are uh, knuckleheads on both sides of the aisle. You know. Um, oh, sure. absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. No oh, question yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and I think you know it's like, um, and and they just make it worse for the people who have sense. You know what I mean? Like, like. Mike is considers himself a liberal, but you know everything that he, all of his positions and views or whatever they are, are backed by a lot of factual stuff. True, you know what I mean. No so, question. Yeah, so, yeah. And then, in you know, and like me myself, like half of my family is like left wing liberals, and the other half is like right wing conservatives. You know, <laughs> so uh, family get-togethers are always interesting, and. um like because of that, because I came up in this kind of diverse view, diversified views, uh, p- political views. Uh, A house divided. Yeah, right. No, well, so it just for me, like I don't like to call myself a Republican or a Democrat. I kind of consider myself in the middle because I can see where one of my uncles is like too hardcore right wing. And then I could see where one of my aunts is like too hardcore left wing. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. this is an interesting contrast. And then, like I said before, my Facebook is kind of interesting like that, where like I have like the wing nuts, like, you know, back to back on different posts though. So I'll see a right wing maniac and then a left wing maniac. And it's just really (laughs) interesting to see the different viewpoints on the same exact thing, you know? Yeah. I think, man, it, honestly, like by the end of the the end of my trip, <clears throat> after having talked with him and a couple other people, and and, and I, man, I talked to a bunch of your people from Europe as well. Uh, we talked about Brexit and just about just about everything you could imagine. They asked me about guns and about the culture that that America is seemingly steeped in, and and it was fascinating, man. But but it seemed to me that by the end, before I left, because um, he's still there, um, but before I left. Uh, he was questioning whether or not he was actually a liberal. He was asking me, like, maybe he didn't even know himself. And, and he was asking me, like, maybe I'm more, wasn't asking, but it was like a rhetorical question. He was like, maybe I'm more uh, in tune with this um, this libertarian thing you keep telling me about, man. I'm going to look into that. And it's not that I convinced him or anything. I just, uh, you know, I kind of explained to him what I thought a libertarian was. I mean, I consider myself a conserv- conservative libertarian because. There are certain things on the on, on, on the other side of the aisle that I'm, uh, you know, in 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 support of in one way or another. So, like you said, man, like a, a nice balanced approach to to a lot of these things is well to everything really is probably the best way to go about it, man. You know, I yeah. mean, well, but, I think the key word there, Jason, is balance. You know that the extremes of any position are seldom right. Yeah. And, right, and, and it's only quote. it's only when you know the Douglas Lincoln debate idea when the two sides come together and start hashing out the realities, not going after the the quick fixes. You know, going to me scientific method. First thing you have to do is identify the problem. 
-hmm. Then you start working on solutions. Are the solutions practical? Can we do it? You've got to be able to communicate, to talk, and it to, and that's the beauty of America is that we have a multi-party system, and probably should be more than you know two major parties. Uh, what really aggravates me are the people that dump on me like I'm some sort of enemy of the state because I'm a liberal, and I only say that because that's a label that sort of identifies a lot of my views. Uh, I, I generally, what was it? it was George Sr. said that labels belonged on soup cans. Uh, you know, and, and when we start labeling ourselves, then we start stepping in line with that ideology, I think. And that can cause us problems. Yeah. So, so, so like you, John, I really don't like applying a label to myself. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, so re recently, like uh... sorry, cold frame. Damn, is somebody on an aircraft? No, no, I uh, I have a railroad track in my backyard, and a coal train is heading south. Oh wow! Okay, oh. literally. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, it sounds like you're you're getting ready for a, a night jump or something, man. Yeah, he's just doing halos on his spare time. Yeah, yeah right. Halo, halos and podcasting, man. That's well, new, well, I do get trend. to see 130s flying over all the time out of Pete Field too. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, like the the whole thing with labels, like, so for the last month, um, I haven't eaten any meat, right? Um, hmm. But I don't like to label myself a vegetarian or a vegan or any of that shit because I feel like then it puts me in that category, you know, and, and just like when people ask me, Oh, so, you know, what are you doing then? I'm just not eating meat. And, uh, you know, my background is fitness and nutrition. And, you know, I'd known for years that too much meat consumption isn't good for you, but it, it was just like an impossible thought for me to stop consuming it you know because uh, i was raised on you know eating meat twice a day or three you know what i mean and like just like the rest of us so um i don't like well, to put the labels on it you know what i mean and um well you're definitely not a vegan or a vegetarian uh, because you didn't just come right out and tell everybody that exactly right you yeah know what i mean exactly. <laughs> i swear because every time i meet somebody like oh you know i'm a vegan i'm a vegetarian and I don't even ask him about that shit. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, like, but sure. but that, that's what it is. Like, I don't want to be associated with, like, you know what I mean? Like, kind of like the nutty crowd, yeah. you know? So, um, <laughs> and, and and that's all it is, you know? And, and to be honest, like, and, and I'm not going to push my views on anybody. Um, but, you know, if we're, if we're having a conversation, I, you know, I'll tell you about it. Um, but... You know, and it's just, you know, I think I'm glad Mike said that because I don't like the whole labeling thing, you know. Um, That's fair, for sure. You know, and I agree it, completely. And, 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 but then there are idiots, you know, who fall under the label. So, you know, it goes both ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. John, you're going to have to break this up into two podcasts or do some terrific editing. Yeah. I, um, I'll be honest, man. I like the longer ones, man. Yeah, it's funny because well, it's good for us that are chatting, but for somebody to sit down and listen to this, you got to remember that the average attention span is about twenty minutes. Yeah, <laughs> and I, and, I, and that's that's for real. I mean, from teaching, uh, 
You know, the, 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 the ideal length of a public address is 20 minutes because people just can't attend to something longer than that. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Uh, I knew Jason was going to say that he liked it because we, <laughs> I think we spoke like three weeks ago or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we were talking about podcasts and formatting and all that. And um, I remember you, you were a fan of like that raw, uncut. Uh, yeah, I, I like editing, it all in you know? there, man. I think yeah. it's fascinating to just to hear the 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 no the non structure the the because uh, it feels like when when people are able to just kind of interject their ideas and as long as you're not tripping over each other and I think we've done a great job tonight. Um, yeah. But it just, because there's so many there's if it's too structured, then you really lose that the spontaneity of of interjecting maybe something that you heard or something you read or someone else. Um, you know, like I, earlier, I wanted to ask G about um, Intel leaks when he was working. Uh, you know, after Phantom Fury, maybe he was working with some some Iraqis and stuff. I wanted to ask him about that. And it was, I mean, yeah. the way the way things just kind of rolled, that we we moved past it quickly. But yeah. you know, I like the longer format, and I mean, someone can always push pause and come back to it. You know, I mean, yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny because I was I was podcasting with uh, Tulan from Rona Tactics right before we got on, so I literally been recording for like the last two and a half hours or three hours. Um, <laughs> wow! Yeah. So, but and then the editing part. It, it, so typically, the way I was doing it before me and Jason had that conversation was like I would literally edit every single thing and and try and make it as perfect as possible. And that was just my view on how it should be. And then Jason kind of hit me with his viewpoint, and he kind of convinced me a little bit that, you know, that raw, that raw style is good. So I think I'm going to leave some of the the um, uh, Mike doing his night jumps um, <laughs> in, and you know, and just trying to you know try that out and see how that goes. Yeah, well, it's like Mike said, you got to have balances, which is you know, I completely agree with that. You know, yeah. And I, and I wanted to ask you um, how how it's come along. Like, do you think your podcasts have progressed? Like, uh, uh, how how much more structured were they before you and I had that talk? And as compared to now, like, um, well, are, are they- I'll say one thing: um, going the less structured route means less editing time. So I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, there you go. Because, <laughs> um, like, like, let's say right now we've been recording for an hour and 40 minutes, right? Let's say I'm going to edit. It's going to take me at least an hour and 40 minutes because I have to replay the whole thing and make sure I get every noise out of it. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. But especially because it's an hour and 40 minutes, there's no way in hell I'm doing that. So uh, <laughs> people are going to get everything raw. You know what I mean? I'm good so, with it, man. Yeah. I haven't said anything that I don't want anybody to hear, so yeah. <laughs> fuck it. <laughs> um, all right, so but with, with that being said, uh, I think we should wrap it up because <laughs> um, I do have some editing to do. Uh, so, um, as always, you know, I appreciate you guys coming on. I think we had a great episode, and uh, you know, maybe we should do this kind of. A four-way thing a little more often. Um, I think it's interesting. So, uh, what what we'll do is we'll drop everybody's social media handles and websites. Um, G, we'll start with you. Uh, can you drop like all your handles, your websites, and everything like that? Yeah, sure. So my main page it's uh, Zero Foxtrot. It's www.zerofoxtrot.com. Uh, Facebook, just look for Zero Foxtrot, and then Instagram, it's uh, Zulu Fox. Uh, I'm not changing that. Yeah. And. Uh, <laughs> 
And then for our project, it's uh, Zero Films Productions. Um, same handle for IG and uh, uh, and Facebook. Um, one thing I also wanted to throw out the handles of the guys that I'm working with for Zero Films Productions. So Jonathan, uh, his is uh, DP Jonathan Hammond on IG. And then we have uh, 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 Jesse. He's our photographer, and his handle for IG is Jr. Phillips Photography. So definitely check it out. And uh, uh, I also I definitely appreciate the uh, the opportunity to speak with you guys, uh, Mike. It was a it was a pleasure. And again, thank you for your service. Uh, and Jason, uh, also I appreciate the book, man. I, I loved every, every every page of it, and uh, I wish you all the success. And John. Uh, Definitely keep doing what you're doing, man. You've grown exponentially, and uh, anything I can do to help, man, by by any means, you know, any of you, let me know. So, appreciate it, brother. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, so, Jason, where, where can people find your book uh, if they uh, want to check it out? <clears throat> best place to find it is on Amazon. I do sell um, some I'll personalized copies of it, but I don't have many with me. So, the best way to get it right now is to go on Amazon. It's uh, four ninety nine for the Kindle, and the price generally it sometimes fluctuates for the paperback, uh, but it should be at nineteen ninety nine. Sometimes it's a little bit lower. It um, is. It is. It is. I just ordered a couple, and you got some hardbacks on there selling for forty five dollars, dude. What? <laughs> I gotta this check is, that out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like hardbacks. Some hard Gotta check that shit out. I don't know if that's legitimate or not. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know either. But I saw some of your books with really high price tags on it. So what? That might be like okay. you might have fell victim to like the North uh, Koreans or something, man. Yeah, the Norks are coming after me. I did talk a lot of shit about communists in that book. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So Amazon's the number one spot to get it. If you guys read it, you like it, leave a review. Um, you can find me on Facebook at JS Economos, E-C-O-N-O-M-O-S. That's my author page on Facebook and uh, at JS E-C-O-N-O-M-O-S on IG. Uh, you know, it's funny. Um, you know, we were talking for a while. Like you were, you, I think you wrote like an article for my website before the podcast, and then I think you you helped edit uh, some articles. Oh um, yeah, yeah, and. I had no idea how the hell to pronounce your last name, and <laughs> and I, I I forgot what the hell I was saying. It was something completely wrong, man. And Economos, uh, I, I, I think it was Economos. I, I was I was mispronouncing your name for a while. I, I, I've heard ecological disaster before, man. So it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's Greek, so that's that's where that comes from. Right. And yep, that's where you can find me, man. Instagram and, and Facebook. Uh, if you guys. If any of you guys out there want a personalized copy, I sign and number all the copies that I sell personally. Uh, so just inbox me, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Uh, I generally don't keep that many copies on hand, just you know, um, because I don't. I just don't sell many of them. But uh, yeah, if 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 you want personalized, I don't. If you buy it off of Amazon, it will not come with a a number or an autograph. So. You can send it to me. I've done that before. Mike Stahl, he sent me a bunch of them before, so I do do that. All right, cool. And and Mike, uh, can you drop your website as well for the listeners? Yeah, I'm at www.trickymisfit.com. Tricky Misfit was uh, my call sign on the A-Team, so I've carried that on. And I'm on Facebook, also Tricky Misfit. You can find me there. And, and G, uh, you need to go to my site and... And watch the videos that I've got posted, the, the ballads from Vietnam and the tributes particularly. 
Uh, I, I sure will. I, yes. I definitely will. Thank you. I uh, yeah. and and I know I mentioned it before. If uh, if uh, um, uh, if you know if you would like to you know tell your story and and you know for us to be involved in it, we would be more than happy to to do so. So, yeah, I, I would love to do that with you, man, for sure. Okay, sounds good. Um, thank you. Yeah. So, uh, and then for the audience as well, uh, if you guys have any questions about any of the guests or anything like that, just send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net. And, um, you know, if you have a question about any of these guys on here, you know, I can get them to directly, uh, respond to you and, uh, answer your question. So, uh, once again, guys, uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, it was fun. Um, I've been sitting in the same seat for like three hours now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so. I just, thanks for having me on, man. This was a blast. I enjoyed talking to all you guys. Um, Mike and, and G in particular, uh, I want to say welcome home and, and thank you both for, for your uh, service and sacrifice. It, it's, um, it's not lost on all of us, so for what it's worth. Yeah, um, yeah thank, thank you guys, you. man. Thank you. All right, brothers. Peace. Yep. Later. I think that was the longest form podcast that we've recorded since we've started. And I actually enjoyed that kind of conversational format with, uh, you know, multiple guys on. And, you know, their point of view, their perspective and their experience is uh, highly valuable. So I always enjoy having them on. And I think we may switch some episodes over to that kind of format, like that long conversational format. So with that, we're going to close out the episode. My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook is FB Recon. I have two Instagram accounts. The first one is IG Recon. The second one is Global Recon underscore Inc. I'm on Twitter at IG Recon. I'm on LinkedIn at Global Recon. Leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, download, subscribe to the podcast. And uh, we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.